You are listening to Scotland's Ear to the Ground, the podcast that brings you interviews with Scotland's finest composers. Your hosts are Aileen Sweeney and Ben Eames. Janet Beat is a composer living in Scotland whose impressive career spans back to the late 1950s. She's widely considered to be a pioneer of electronic music in Britain and in 2019, Janet was the first person to be awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award by Scottish Women Inventing Music, a collection of music creators and industry professionals pushing for gender equality in the music industry. Now at 83, her music has been officially released for the first time with her debut album, Pioneering Nov Twiddler. Hello, how are you? I'm fine, thanks, Aileen. So to start off with, um, could you tell us a little bit about your first significant musical experience? What initially drew you to writing music and compelled you to follow a career as a composer? Well, it's a long time ago when I was a small child. My parents weren't professional musicians, but my mother was extremely musical. And I had a gran who came every Friday and she played the piano and sang songs. And sometimes one of my father's friends, who business friends who played the violin would come. So I heard and saw live music making in the home. And what I realized as an educationist is that what you do at home is real what you do at school is unreal. And I was very small, and we had a very, very tall piano. And I used to sit under the piano with my ear to the soundboard and hear what I called the rainbow sounds. In other words, the overtones. I mean, I didn't know anything about acoustics in those days. But that's how it began. So I know all the Edwardian musical songs, because that's what that crowd used to sing. <laughs> you know, Mary Lloyd and... Uh, well, your grandmas would uh, understand. My old man <laughs> says, follow the band and don't dilly-dally on the way. Can't say I'm familiar with them, but... No, you won't be. <laughs> you won't be. I pr- probably think your great-grandma would <laughs> <laughs> And then I was bought a toy piano... Because I spent, you see, the formative years of my childhood during the Second World War. And all your toys were homemade or second-hand. And I had this toy piano. It had one dud note. But I wrote this little piece for it. And I did know how to write it down. And I was three and a half. But it was hearing music live. And there were only two radio stations in those days. The Home Service and the Light Programme. No television, so Mother used to search the radio stations, the foreign ones, to pick up classical music from abroad. (laughs) And it gave me the idea compositionally for collage, because you'd be listening and another radio station would break in. And, of course, you didn't always get which composer was being played, because the music had already started when you fiddled around with the tuner to find the station. (laughs) You know, it would say Moscow, 
Oslo, Hilversum, Luxembourg, uh, sometimes France. And then, of course, you would sometimes not understand the announcements. You never knew what, what, what the work was. And it was only when my mother started to take me to City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra concerts, I'd go, thinking I'd known nothing, and knew it all. <laughs> oh, that was Beethoven's Eroica, was it? Or that was Ravel's Daphnis and Chloe. And then they had a wind-up gramophone for the shellac discs of 78 RPM, and they never knew that I'd broken it because I was always curious, you see. Having heard the overtones from the soundboard of the piano, I used to go around pinging things. <laughs> Not hitting them hard to be destructive, then putting my ear close to them to see how they really sounded. So I've always been interested in sound and the qualities of sound. And when I take country walks, I listen to all the sounds around me, and soon learned that leaves on trees make different sounds according to whether the shape and edge of the leaf. And I used to put my ear against the trunks of trees, particularly when there was a high wind and they would creak deliciously. <laughs> there was a big rhododendron bush which was hollowed out and when I was very small I could crawl under it and there was a branch I could sit on and listen to the seed pots breaking, the rabbits stumping, all sorts of interesting sounds. And that was just me. No wonder my parents thought I was weird. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I learnt music. So once you wrote your first piece on the on the toy piano, did you did you keep going with it then? Did you keep writing well, from then on? Yes. I called it having a concert in the head. <laughs> I mean, if I was recording a piece of music and I knew what it was, I would say I'm listening to Beethoven 7. And I got very strange looks from adults. I mean, my parents, I heard them talking once when I was quite small. I was in my junior school age because it wasn't done in Middle England for a woman to write music and to be creative. My parents' ambitions for me, and not only me, other women of my generation, was to get married. When you got married, if you had a job, you had to give it up. And so they wanted you to be a teacher, a nurse, or a lawyer, something like that, so you could meet the suitable man who were good a sound and solid roof over your head. So things have changed now, thank heavens. So I had to battle, I've battled all my life to be recognised as a composer. As we know, your career has spanned several decades, during which the attitudes towards female composers has changed. How have you noticed it changed? How has it changed for you? Well, it was very difficult. Some colleagues, as I say, supported me, and some didn't. Some people never like change, you see. Makes them feel uncertain. And some people are interested in change, whether they're men or women. But thank heavens now, uh, there are far more women composers, and 
you know, even full programs now of music by women. So I think it's it's sort of evened out. Would you say it has evened out, or do you think there's still a way to go? Or I think there is some still some way to go. I mean, when I had the Lifetime Achievement Award, mm-hmm. I know some men were upset because it was for women only. Right, got you. Yeah, so not mentioning names, I'm not mentioning names. <laughs> <laughs> but I wasn't surprised in the direction it came from. <laughs> I mean, there's been the Equal Opportunities Act because uh, I was physically assaulted by a colleague once. So I complained to my head of department and was told, you're never going to be promoted because you're a woman. You're not one of our graduates. And we have every intention of promoting the career of blankety-blank. So later, when I was asked to give up a weekend to attend the careers conference to represent this institution, I said, no, I think it's more appropriate you ask somebody to give up a weekend whose career you intend to promote. (laughs) (laughs) I won't be bullied. What did you do in the weekend? Did you put your feet up? (laughs) I did some compose. (laughs) (laughs) Quite right. Yeah, but it's much more acceptable now for women to do everything. I mean, when I uh, moved over to Glasgow University, I was pleased to see... I lectured in both the arts and the science faculty because I have Bachelor of Engineering students for multi-sound diffusion. So I lectured to them on acoustics, psychoacoustics, how the brain processes music. And... I was pleased to see there were some girls joining in that course, and now there's quite a few. Mm. Slowly. Slowly, slowly. Yeah. Well, I mean, when I first started at the RCS, there was only one female composition student. Um, And that was only, you know... You know, ten years ago or whatever. Ten years ago. But now, now it's half and half, so even just in the... The time that I was there, you know, yes. was a yes. drastic yes. shift. Yeah. Golly, I left them in 1996. 96? Yes, to move over to Glasgow University. So, uh, yeah, it should have happened sooner than that, I think. Mm. But at least it's there now. Yeah. Which is very pleasing. So we'd love to hear um, a bit about what inspired you to begin experimenting and composing with electronic music? Well, there used to be a shop in Birmingham. I went to Birmingham University that sold second-hand LPs. And I used to go there and riffle through the second-hand <laughs> LPs and came across an LP of sound verse by Pierre-Henri and Pierre Schaeffer. Took it home and was fascinated. This was music concrete. So... I asked for my 21st birthday for a professional quality tape recorder. My father wasn't at all interested in the arts, but he had his factory to be able to do tape loops. I couldn't afford a second tape recorder at that time. I took the tape recorder in and it weighed a ton. Oh, my. And I got them to make me another capstan with a guide pin 
and put it on a clamp so I could clamp it onto a shelf or the side of a chair and get a tape loop. Then I bought a stereo tape recorder and began Music Concrete. I mean, my first Music Concrete piece was from uh, an antique pair of Turkish cymbals which had an indented surface, a bit like um, a tam-tam. And I called it Symbalis Number One. But none of my early works exist because later on in life, I was living away from home and my father retired and bought a place in the country. I had a big cardboard box with these music concrete pieces in and a 600-gallon water tank burst and came right through what was my bedroom. So the box with the tapes in was thrown in a barn and I came home that summer to visit my parents and found my dad had used all my tapes to tie up his sweet peas and things in the kitchen garden. I mean, he didn't do it to be spiteful. He just thought they'd be ruined. He wouldn't realise that might have deteriorated through the oxide backing a little bit, but they were still usable as sound as a sound archive. Then I moved jobs, and my early synthesizer pieces were in a box that never arrived, or rather, people walked by removal vans and just grabbed the first box. They would have been bitterly disappointed, as they say, they were thrown away. <laughs> That's why the earliest piece on the album release is Dancing on Moonbeams, because that's the earliest one that still survives. But it started off as an improvisation. I'd again bought, trying things on this new a sequence I bought from the Roland 100M series. And I pressed the record button and I thought, what shall I do as a title? And then it reminded me of one of Kandinsky's improvisations because it looked like he'd got some planets in the sky. Well, when I did it in those days, it was difficult to copyright your purely electronic music. And that's why I wrote a score which bore a little resemblance to the Kandinsky picture, but I devised uh, 
graphics to show which bits of technology I'd use mm. and called it Dancing on Moonbeams. <laughs> Good idea. I did play it in a concert and um, people didn't know what to make of it and one London critic tore me to shreds because it was on uh, Scottish Society Composers Issues at LP. Um, a couple of performers dropped out at the last minute and they said, have you got anything electronic to put in its place? And I wrote a tongue-in-the-cheek program note. I said, close your eyes and become an oral astronaut. And some people actually did that. It was very much tongue-in-cheek. I didn't expect them to do it. I mean, huh. it was a fun piece. Everybody had written deadly serious <laughs> analytical program notes for their pieces, you see. And I thought, let's put a bit of humour in this. And this London critic, I think he's still alive, he went to the USA, took it literally. Silly woman, science fiction music. Now the album's come out, it seems to be everybody's favourite piece. <laughs> <laughs> the album features seven electroacoustic recordings which were created between 1978 and 87. What were the sort of equipment and technology that you were using to create these pieces? Well, back then? I visited Peter Zinoviev, who created the first affordable synthesizer in the UK. I heard the programme by Robert, well, we call him Moog, but apparently he was pronounced Moog because yeah. he was Dutch in origin. And I heard Walter Carlos, as she was then, and I was fascinated by that. Oh, I must have a synthesizer. But he hadn't started the factory then. It was made to order and it cost you about, in the 1960s, £10,000. That's yes. deep. <laughs> Well, yes. And then Peter Zinoviev came on the scene. So I bought a Cynthia, the suitcase version. And I did some uh, summer schools and uh, male tutoring for the Open University to earn enough money to buy my first synthesizer. And that's what set me going. Then I went on and I bought equipment by Roland and Yamaha, and gradually built up my own studio. And there's a picture on the album cover of my studio at home. It's a great picture. <laughs> yeah. And um, I got up to the Roland, about 14 synthesizers. It, it was modular, so you could buy the module at a time. And then I had various keyboards as well. So I could have a complete clockwork orange and have 16 oscillators working all at once. If I wanted to, you don't need 16 working all at once. But there was that possibility. And of course, you have them all close to hand, the keyboard one side, your computer, and various pedals. So you were a bit like an organist, really, using both hands and your feet, as long as the cat didn't come in and sit on top of the computer and drop his leg down over the screen or walk across the keyboard and delete what you just done. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, a personal favourite of mine was the Lighthouse's Waltz when I was listening through. And I, I just kind of wondered um, 
where the where the waltz came from because you don't normally associate waltzes with electronic music. Oh well, that was film music. Was it? Oh yes. <laughs> now, the film is now in the National Library of Scotland. Is it? You can watch the film. I did as much music as you would for a long feature because there was no dialogue. Fifteen minutes of non-stop music. All right. <laughs> And it's called Second Glance Lighthouse by a filmmaker called Eddie McConnell. And he had this idea, and you couldn't turn him off it. I want a wee tune like three notes playing round and round in a circle, like the wind through telephone wires. You couldn't get him off that. I thought, you know, flashing on and off of a lighthouse would be at least... Two, four, or four, four. But no, he wanted a waltz. <laughs> so that's where the waltz came from. Well, that's where the waltz came from. And I did actually recycle a piece I've written for a flute-playing friend of mine as a as a, a housewarming piece. Mm. So it was originally written for flute and piano. Really? Wow. <laughs> Another thing he said to me, can you give me so many seconds of singing voices drowning? And I said, what do you mean? Do you want to scare the audience, glug, glug, glug? Mm. Or do you want a siren song, alluring? Mm. And that's what he wanted.
You can watch the whole film, National Library of Scotland's Second Glance Lighthouse. We definitely will. Yeah. <laughs> that could be tonight's viewing. <laughs> well, 15 minutes. We'll watch it a couple of times then. <laughs> <laughs> Works such as Echoes of Bali and Piangam are both influenced by Indonesian gamelan. Could you tell us a little bit more about your experiences with this culture? I went to Indonesia before it was fashionable to go to. Because when I was a schoolgirl, I had uh, some 78s records of the history of music of sound. And there was a, a recording of a gamelan orchestra. Mm. And I loved Debussy's music. And of course, he heard gamelan in the Great Paris Exhibition which influenced the scherzo and his string quartet besides some of his piano pieces. So I decided I'd like to go visit Indonesia. Well, of course, there were no cheap holiday flights or anything. And I was at school in the 1950s. So it was later I actually took a holiday, went to Indonesia, and actually played with a family camelan at the Puncak Pass. And then I went on to Bali, but uh, it was just a totally different style. And then onto the island of Lombok, and they were playing all wooden instruments. And I smiled at them to join in with them. Let me join in with you. which was great fun, because I'd noticed all the gamelan music was in 4-4. Four four. Mm. So I was a bit naughty, and of course, they don't write it down. It's all done like folk musicians and jazz, a lot of jazz. Mm. I, I was playing along with them in 4-4, four four, and then suddenly I played in 5-4. And they picked it up straight away. I did one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, you see. And they looked up at me in broad grins, spread over their faces and they started doing it and then I went one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three and they grinned and they started doing that with me so we were switching between four, four and various groupings of five, four and they were giggling and laughing and enjoying themselves. I got told off by an ethnomusicologist when I came back I had corrupted the purity into Camelot music. <laughs> <laughs> So it's a three-movement work. Again, on the disc, there's only one movement because there was a programme done uh, uh, by Radio Scotland from my studio in 1983. And I got somebody to play the piano part, which I then multi-tracked into the tape part of the second movement only because the piano part, I couldn't have done it myself. So that's why it's only the second movement. And I also put metal chains over the strings so they rattled when you played. So you don't really know. I like playing around with oral perception. What's on the tape? What's synthetic? What is real? And blend the two together. And so I have insect noises, which I made synthetically, real bird song, which I had music concreted, of course. Mm. And some students at the RCA 
well, it was the RSMD then, uh, the, the monkey dance they do on Bali, and it's all vocal. And they say, ketchup, 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 ketchup. So I asked one teacher, could I have his class for a few moments to record ketchup for me? Some of them were singing, were saying ketchup. <laughs> but by the time I manipulated it and done various things with it, you don't hear ketchup anymore. <laughs> and then in the last moment, the tambourine, you have to lay on the strings and the pianist has to drum on that at one point. So I like transforming sounds. Mm. So you have to have an assistant, like an organist, pulling the organ stops for you to take the chains out, put the back in, and put the tambourine in, and so on. And pluck the strings as well.
quite interesting as well because Gamelan, it, it sort of the sound fuses together like that in a similar way, doesn't it? It becomes you can't really distinguish what people are doing because it's just one huge unit of of yes, sound, it's which is quite heterophony, really. Yeah, yeah. And they tune it so that by our standards, it's slightly out of tune, which gives you this shimmering sound. I mean, there is a, a genuine gamelan instrument uh, next to the toilet downstairs, which I bought on Java, and I expected it to come by boat, but it didn't. It arrived before I got back home and was in store at Glasgow Airport. <laughs> That's funny. But if you know anybody who wants uh, a Gende Panerus tuned to, it's a pentatonic one, Pelog. Uh, I've got one for sale. <laughs> <laughs> the fifth piece on the album is called A Willow Sweat by Rain. Can you tell us about the inspiration for this piece? I was inspired by the poem um, Peter Quince at the Clavier by Wallace Stevens. Actually, he's my, one of my favourite poets. He's inspired several of my pieces. And he goes in this poem, which is in four sections. It's like four section movements of a symphony, actually. This, the tempo changes. It's very musical. And he goes into a long uh, metaphor of Susanna and the Elders. And at one point, it's like a scherzo. Then came her attendant business scenes with a noise like tambourines. And then, in their torches uplifted flame, they see Susanna in her shame. And then it goes on to say, their whispered refrain was like a willow swept by rain. As soon as I read that line, the piece started. hear what you what you're wanting to write before you you write it if that makes sense can you hear it yes like you form it forms in your head before you then yes i mean sometimes not always i will improvise at the keyboard particularly if i haven't written anything for a little while but on the most no somebody asked me to write a piece for a certain combination and uh, i will even do housework put it off I remember Antonia Byatt saying when she was cut a commission to write a new novel, she put little post-it notes round her home uh, saying, let's start a new novel. While she did housework to put it off, or Stravinsky said he felt sick at the sight of a blank piece of manuscript. <laughs> 
and I know what they sort of mean. So I say to myself, oh, I must write a piece for violin, horn, and piano. And I wait till my brain starts sending those instruments to me. Do you ever find the wait a bit nervous? Are you ever waiting a little bit too long or a little close to the deadline for your brain to start sending the... Well, no. I might improvise, at, well, used to, can't now, um, at, at the keyboard, or improvise something to get the neurons in the brain going to the you-must-make-music side. I mean, once I did a sort of 15-minute little thing based on uh, ciphers of a neighbour's family, and it sounded a bit like Verdi. I didn't do a whole Verdi orchestration because it was just a bit of fun. And it sounded... And when I played it, I put it on a CD and took it up to them. And the wife said under her breath, my golly, she's got this family sorted out. Because there was the bossy, bomb, 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 bomb thing. And then there was the pleading sound. It was just like a Verdi opera. And that got the brain going. And then I came back home and started the piece I got to write. <laughs> so there are various ways you can kickstart yourself. Well, um... Following on from the release of your album, are there any premieres or performances of your work coming up that our listeners can look out for? Yes. Some of the, uh, there's a delayed one because of COVID. Again, the piece was supposed to come out on a CD with other composers for uh, solo female voice, piano and six percussionists called Miranda's Island. I've taken the idea of uh, the Tempest Miranda and the text is Shakespeare, so there's, uh, it's out of copyright. We're linking text by me, and I give myself the copyright for it to be reproduced. That, I don't know, they're hoping to get into a recording studio and give a performance in Edinburgh next year. I'm still waiting to see. And then, of course, there was the Vivaldi project, the four Seasons in a Day, by the Glasgow Barons. And now I've been contacted by BBC Three to devote a programme to my electroacoustic work for the Tectonics Festival next year and an orchestral and acoustic programme in 2023. Amazing. So it's happened. I'm, unlike poor Malcolm Arnold, who had a revival and the concert of his music was going to be played and he died the day before. Really? Yes. So sad. So, I keep your fingers crossed for next year. <laughs> <laughs> and certainly for 2023. <laughs> well, when you've turned 80, who knows? It's a long time. You've just got to stick in there and say, damn you, I'm going to do it. I have to do it. I'm compelled to do it. Because I'm full of curiosity. That takes us quite nicely, actually, onto the last thing that we wanted to ask, um, which was, do you have any tips or any words of wisdom for composers at the beginning of their career? Yes. Feed the brain. Try every musical style. 
take an interest in everything, science as well as the arts, read verse, read novels, look at pictures, go to museums. The brain needs feeding. Then it never rests. You'll find it'll start piecing it together. You'll find your own individual voice. And never take any notice of people who ridicule you. Never take any notice of people who say you admire the wrong composers. These are all things that were said to me. You've got to do what you've got to do and stick to your guns.